optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen the perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably athletic greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers, people who are exceptionally good at what they do, to tease out the routines, habits, favorite books, and so on, that you can hopefully test and apply to your own lives. And my guest today is none other than Drew Houston. H-O-U-S-T-O-N, at Drew Houston on Twitter and elsewhere. He's the co-founder and CEO of Dropbox. Since founding the company in 2007 with Arash Ferdozi, Drew has led the company's growth from a simple idea to a service used by 500 million people around the world. You can let that number sink in. Drew received his bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and computer science from MIT in 2006. I think I've heard of that place. After graduating, he turned his frustration with carrying USB drives and emailing files to himself into a demo for what then became Dropbox. Today, Dropbox is one of the world's leading business collaboration platforms with 11 million paying subscribers and 1,800 plus employees across 12 global offices. Drew, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, I've wanted to have an excuse to ask you for your life story and all these details because we've known each other quite a while, but it's super weird to sit down with a 
a glass of wine at a dinner table or something like that and just start asking you for your Dr. Evil story. So this is, this is a fun opportunity for me to dig in. So I appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Yeah, me too. It's, uh, it's, it's great to be here. And I uh, thought we would start with some of the backstory that I do not know, and that is your childhood. And uh, perhaps you could just begin by telling us how you would describe yourself as a kid. I mean, let's just call it kind of three to sixth grade or any time, really. What type of kid were you? <laughs> so yeah, going, going way back. Um, well, I, first I was, uh, I was definitely that kid who was uh, on computers. So we, my parents, I remember uh, just like, like toddling into my living room and seeing this glowing orb and all these buttons. And those were two things I really liked when I was three, <laughs> um, I guess still do. Um, and, um, so uh, for sure I was, I was super interested in, in computers and t- technology and, um, started out by, by playing computer or video games. Basically that was like the first interest. And then I wanted to make my own computer games. Um, I thought that my career was going to be, uh, starting a computer game company. And I thought that was, uh, that there would be nothing better than that. Um, and, uh, so I, but I, but I was that kid. So I, I learned programming at an early age. Um, I grew up in, uh, just outside of Boston. So I grew up in new England. Um, and, uh, and then on my way to MIT, I, you know, I really liked math science. Um, so, uh, kind of out of cent- central casting in terms of being a computer science student. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then, then, I got my first career was babysitting, but then I discovered that you could be paid to program, and then that caused a bit of a career shift, <laughs> which we can talk about. Um, uh, as much as I enjoyed the babysitting lifestyle, you, know, you, you get like three bucks an hour, eat some Pringles, watch some HBO. It's not that bad, <laughs> um, but uh, but programming is even better. Anyway, so. Um, so, uh, so, but in, in, in middle school and in high school, I ended up getting, um, uh, a bunch of programming internships or, or, or summer jobs, um, at what were start, at startups, basically. Um, one of them was remote, uh, most of them were local, but then that got me on a path of, of starting companies and, and being involved in startups. But, um, I would say those are probably the, um, the biggest when it, when it when it comes to Dropbox and everything that kind of followed after the for, from my childhood it was a happy childhood lots of um, uh, I'd say it was still pretty balanced but I, I did I, I like programming and engineering was for, for sure my first my first love and were you a shy kid an extroverted kid uh, played sports kind of kept to yourself at recess what was what would uh, somebody looking in from the outside like how would your how would your third grade teacher describe you in that capacity? Yeah, I think somewhere in the middle. So I, I wasn't um, reclusive. Um, I had a g- really great group of friends. Um, I wasn't captain of the soccer team either. Um, <laughs> I think I did. I did academic. I, I, was, <laughs> I did academic decathlon, which is just a fascinating thing that it it exists. Um, but you know, more of a math elite than <laughs> <laughs> right than an athlete <laughs> athlete so um but uh and, and i was I, I, yeah i was not like uh, super social but i had a good group of friends and um um 
and then for sure, as I went into college, I became a lot more social and, and, and just curious about humans and human behavior. Um, but, uh, but otherwise I think people like the, I would have been known in class, um, as always doing like, I think there were like those superlatives in yearbooks. I think I was like most likely to start a company or most likely to be, like, <laughs> so they uh, pegged it pretty early. Yeah. <laughs> so I was doing homework for this, which I always enjoy doing when it's, it's someone I know, uh, because I, I dig up all these bits and pieces that I w- then want to ferret out and, and explore a bit. So I, I came across this line that described folding chair on top of fraternity, uh, at <laughs> MIT and that you would go up there with piles of books and read these books. So I don't, I, could you place us when that was in your undergrad career and how you chose the books and why you did that? Yeah. So I, it was about my junior year of, uh, of, of undergrad. I took a leave of absence because I had an idea for a startup that I wanted to pursue. Um, so I took a year off to do that. Uh, and what I noticed was that the, this was back in 2004. So the, I was maybe 21 and the, uh, SAT was changing, uh, or I started an online SAT prep company, and, maybe, and because what the opportunity was was the SAT was changing in 2004, 2005 from 1,600 points to 2,400 points. So suddenly, all the course material overnight was going to be obsolete. And so I saw an opportunity to maybe develop not just a course for the new SAT, but an online course. And I teamed up with a former teacher from my high school who had his own little cottage SAT prep company. And I'm like, hey, if we come together, we can put this thing online, and we'll be on an even playing field because. Um, you know, all those 800 page books that have been printed about it are now, uh, obsolete and who really wants to go to some classroom at eight in the morning on Saturday. Um, anyway, like we can build a much better experience if, if we do it online. So, um, I was really excited about starting a company and we jumped into it and I think we, we met in a Chili's and like, we're, we're planning world domination and like figuring out how do you incorporate a company and so it's a really great um introduction to the world of starting companies and then um it was it it also the more i learned about the mechanics of of starting a company the more i realized i didn't know about business um and i I knew a lot about engineering and programming and um and i'd been i'd worked at startups um but when it came to when, it, but it was kind of the, there was a fog beyond just like building the product, and so I was like, all right, we're going to need. I know like sales and marketing and and strategy, like these are all things, and all I know is I don't know a lot about them. So um, I had the highly scientific method of I just was like, all right, I'm just going to go on Amazon, type in sales, buy the top three or four books, and just do that for every like category. Um, and then I had a couple of book recommendations from one of the founders of one of the companies where I worked as well. But, uh, but it was, it was great. And it was, it was, it, it was an important combination. So if one was, one was actually starting the company gave me motivation to really learn the stuff because I think a lot of times when you're reading, it can just be like entertainment. Basically it's like something where you just like read the book. You're like, that's interesting, but then don't use the knowledge. Right. But you're actually starting a company then you really have an excuse to internalize and really study the material. So there's a big difference between reading the material and studying it. Totally. Uh, but I was pretty systematic about it. I'm like, okay, here's all the stuff that 
uh, I don't know. And, um, and then reading is going to be a good way to get me introduced to all these topics. Um, and all of that, maybe the first instance of that was when, um, you know, I went through my high school and I was, and there were a lot of great books that you read as part of your, um, you know, high school curriculum. But, um, then I stumbled across a book, emotional intelligence by Daniel Goleman. And I was like, Oh my God, like this has just like, it's, I mean, it's nonfiction. Um, but it, it's, it spelled out something that was, I just didn't know you could kind of break down in a logical way. Um, and suddenly I have this understanding about the world that I didn't have before. Um, and so that was important because it sort of, it, it, it was sort of one of a bunch of early examples that anything is trainable and, and, and it, it got me on a path to developing what we'd now call a growth mindset. Um, and realizing that's possible to learn about these things that you, that were, where you have no experience or where it's easy to be like, Oh, I don't know about that. Or I'm, I'm just an engineer. I'm not a business person. Um, and kind of shatter that misconception. Do you think that you were open to all these different categories of learning because of the necessity vis-a-vis starting the company? The reason I ask that is that uh, it's it's not across the board, but some people with engineering chops have seem to have a learned or intrinsic disdain for sales, marketing, these different bits and pieces of businesses that are a little softer, let's say, less quantifiable in some respects. Uh, was it was it simply the motivation in building this company where you had to write uh, or rather wear all those hats that kind of drove you into these different categories? Or were you intrinsically, using that word quite a bit, but interested in learning more about these different buckets through these different books? Well, I think it was a little of both. So certainly starting the company made it a necessity and created a lot, a lot of additional motivation. But the experience, I also found these other topics uh, just as interesting as, as the engineering. Um, and I, and I think it's, yeah, it's a big culture when engineers um, start off by being dismissive or defensive about oh, the, the, the technology is all that matters, or if it doesn't have a triple integral in Greek letters, it doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> cer- certainly like a, a cultural meme at MIT, um, and I think it just creates a huge blind spot for people, um, both because it makes them less effective, but it's also like the stuff is it is actually really interesting. And it, But I kept having experiences like that, and the emotional intelligence was just one example, but I took a class on negotiation, at MIT, which sort of opened my eyes a notch further on this kind of thing where I'm like, all right, negotiation, I go into that class. I don't know a lot about it. I'm like, whoever like yells louder, lies more, smacks the table harder. I guess that's what makes you a good negotiator. Um, and then this class, like, I mean, those, those are tactics, but like the class has these frameworks where like, okay, smart people have thought about this and they've broken it down. Um, and you, and it, it turns out that, there's a whole process of uncovering mutual interests and figuring out what your leverage is and your best alternative. Da, da, da. And so, and, and spelling it out in a way where I was like, actually, this is a lot more straightforward than some of the theoretical math classes I'm, I'm, I have to take. Um, and it's a lot more applicable to my daily life. And so, um, I started to, I, I really appreciated like learning a little bit about a lot of different disciplines and, and, just putting up a folding chair on my roof was the first thing that came to mind as far as how I could actually do that. 
Were there any other books besides emotional intelligence during that period that really had an impact on you? Yes. Yeah, so, so in that negotiation class, there's a book called Getting the Yes, um, which is about principal negotiation. Um, and I still think about a lot of those. I, I still think about and apply a lot of those concepts um, today. And then some of the, the, the so, so part of it was just like kind of doing a random walk on Amazon. But um, I also became friends with the founders of the companies where I worked. Um, and I went during lunch breaks or at other times I'd, I'd go like chase them down and bug them and ask some questions about like, Hey, how do you start a company? Like, do you have any book recommendations? Um, just making that, uh, you know, kind of taking advantage of being the bright eyed, bushy tailed intern, um, and shaking down my boss or my mentor or my, the founder or, or my mentors for, for advice. And so two of the books that were really instrumental, uh, the first one is innovators dilemma by Clay Christensen. Um, it's a book about how businesses get disrupted and, um, and what, and it's a big part. A lot of those themes are why startups can succeed and thrive even when there are big competitors who you would think would just wipe them out. Um, and so how that cycle works. Uh, and then there's a book called crossing the chasm, which is another classic. Yeah. Uh, it's a book on marketing technology marketing. It's like, how do, how do you, how do technology products make their way from early adopters to the mainstream? And have you found yourself revisiting those books or were they a point in time during that rooftop Amazon education period? I have. I mean, I'd, I'd say there are a lot of, you read a lot of books, not all of them are as good as the innovator's dilemma, but then, yeah, it, it also helps to revisit some of the classics. Uh, innovator's dilemma is actually both of those books are, are good examples. So, so yeah, I do revisit them because again, when you're 21 and you've never had a real job, you know, you're, you're, you're reading this book and you sort of get a general sense for things, but you don't, you don't really deeply understand the concepts. And then coming back five years later, 10 years later, you can really absorb a lot more of the material. So I, I do, I, I, I read a lot of books in general. And then when I'm reading a book, I'll triage. I'm like, okay, is this something I need to study? Is it something that's like, interesting or is it that I might need to know something about or is it just fun um, and if you study it if, if I'm like oh, I need to study this book then I approach it pretty differently than if it's just like entertainment and for, the, for those people who haven't read getting to yes uh, when you were leading into that with some of the concepts from the class I thought to myself I bet that was part of the class or one of the books you read because you, you had best alternative and there's a term yeah. Uh, I do recommend also people read Getting to Yes, BATNA, Best Batna. Alternative to Negotiated Agreement, which is a really important concept to grasp. And there's another book that I might recommend to people. I think it was written later by one of the co-authors of Getting to Yes called Getting Past No. Yep. <laughs> and I think they go yep. together really, really nicely. Uh, if you were teaching, say, we're just going to stick on books for a little bit because I know you sure. read so much. If you were teaching, say, a freshman class or senior class undergrad uh to let's just say smart but non-technical people and you were assigning books to read uh, and uh, they could be part of the class or things that could be read in advance if you were to pick i'm just pulling this out of thin air but three to five books that would be sort of the core of your reading list uh, do any come to mind that we that, that we haven't talked about? 
Yeah. So I, let, I for this for the sake of starting, or if, if the subject of the class were starting a company, yeah, um, or evolving from being an engineer to being a business person, um, I have a few. I have a handful of, of books that I really love, and the concepts I, I still that I use and think about every day. So, um, probably my two favorites are uh, High Output Management by Andy Grove, um, which Andy Grove was the CEO of Intel, which was kind of the Google of its time back uh, in the, particularly back in the eighties. And early '90s, so he, Andy, was an engineer, one of the founding engineers, and then rose the ranks at Intel and became CEO. So he he's lived this path. And and when I read about the, or I heard about this book, and it was introduced to me as the best book on management ever written, um, and I agree. And it just breaks down all the mechanics of um, okay, how, how do you run a team? How do you break down a goal into into sub goals how do you just the the 101 of 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 running a team and running an organization and a focus on uh output and results and how do you measure people and just a lot lot of things that you nuts and bolts things that you uh challenges that you encounter when you're when you're running a team um whether that's a company or a team within a company um second is the effective executive um which does a great by peter drucker um and the, the central core of that book is really about people it's very easy to mistake uh effort for effectiveness um there are a lot of different phrases for this like to confuse motion for progress or but but it's really about that idea so how do you um how do you know if you're being effective what practices and there's a bunch of practices that you can adopt that um that make you more effective and then how do you avoid the sand traps of things that feel productive but aren't, but aren't actually. Um, and it, how, how do you dissect or how do you unpack the case where we all have the same number of hours in a day, but some of us seem to accomplish a lot more um, than others? Why is that and what can you do instead? So the, the effective executive is, it covers a lot of that ground. That, that's another, those two I think of as kind of like textbooks, like you want to study them, you want to take notes, you want to really um, chew on the material. Um, then I, I think there's others. There, there's a lot of other tactical things about starting a company. I, I'd say some more of the a favorite book that's more about the experience of running a company is Ben Horowitz's book, Hard Thing About Hard Things. Right. Which is kind of just shows you kind of a mess and adventure and the crazy highs and lows of of and, and like what the human experience is of actually having to do this. Um, and then I'd probably zoom out and get a little more philosophical. Um, so a couple of favorite books are. Um, Poor Charlie's Almanac by Charlie Munger. So Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's longtime business partner, um, and um, and one of the this book is really interesting because one one of the things about being a CEO um, or taking on big responsibility um, for anything is you have to make a lot of decisions about a lot of different things and do it quickly and be right. Um, and so how do you be right about tons of different things, especially if you don't have a lot of life experience? Like how do you train up that skill quickly? I mean, that's really called wisdom or judgment. Um, and so the so it's like how do you how do you grow wisdom or grow judgment quickly? Um, Poor Charlie's Almanac is a, is a great example of the book. So it talks about how um, actually a lot of what you need to know to be successful in life, conceptually, you learn it in middle school 
or in, in high school, you just don't apply it um, or you don't really internalize the concepts. Um, and he argues that a lot of really wise and effective people develop or they basically build a catalog of mental models um, where uh, and concepts, whether that's something from and basically assemble all the best ideas from all the different disciplines and then figure out how do you apply them in life. And so, for example, the concept of um, a BATNA, like and, and leverage that that might be a concept that can be applied in all kinds of different situations or comparative advantage from economics or and, and uh, or, you know, you could you could go on about um, these different concepts, but then figuring out how do you internalize them so well that you're able to figure out, OK, the, the, these are what matters in these situations. Um, and then uh, and then how do you avoid how do you particularly avoid terrible decisions? But really, how do you build enough of get enough of these? He calls it a loudest work. How do you build enough of a network of these mental models so that you know which ones to apply when? Um, and that you find yourself most of the time being able to make good, quick decisions. Um, and then um, also on the philosophical front, uh, so Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah, piercing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so you talked about engineers who like dismiss like all these things that can't be fit into an algorithm or, uh, or, or you know, uh, that don't have some kind of like mathematical rigor, rigor underpinning them. Um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is about that, like that, just that question of okay, you have like this whole rational world which can explain a bunch of stuff, but then you have the whole aesthetic world, which can't be boiled down to a formula. And they both exist, and they are both useful in different cases, but they don't tend to get along. And so, how do you like? So, what's up with that? And then mm-hmm. it's a really great book about those kind of concepts. And I think developing an appreciation for for both or developing both your left and right brain, you know, to, 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 uh, to use that analogy, I think is really important if you're, if you're running a team or, or growing a company, um, because there's a lot of stuff where it's a lot about technique and data and, and, um, and sort of uh, like, and a lot of things like strategy or, or the engineering ha- are kind of fall into these, if this and that kind of reasoning, but then a lot of, the hard part of the job is really about people and, and what motivates people. How do you um, paint a vision of the world that's exciting for people? How do you um, build good relationships? Um, how do you develop products with taste? Uh, those are things that are not going to be where you're not able to reach as much into the, to the more rational or, in, or like kind of engineering um, bag of tricks. So I think developing both of those um developing both sides of your brain or developing an appreciation for, for both is, is really valuable. Um, maybe one more. The, so uh, principles by, by Ray Dalio, um, who was, I know was a recent guest. Um, I think he's got just really concise and good, um, thoughts for like, all right, how do you sort of approach all the, um, how do you approach life? So it's, um, I would include a mix of, 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 of different kinds of things. I'd have like more instructional books, like more philosophical books, um, more story and history kind of books. Man, I want to take your class. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty, that's pretty good. <laughs> Number one. So consider me pre-registered or pre pre-applied. I want to make a couple of comments on these books that you mentioned because, uh, I, 
I am very fond of all of these books. And I'll, I'll just add a, a couple of, of notes because they tie together also really nicely. So High Output Management by Grove was out of print at one point and then became so popular in Silicon Valley that a new edition was printed. And the forward, I believe, was from Ben Horowitz, who wrote the another book that you had mentioned, you know, the, what is it? The hard thing about hard, thing hard about things. Sentence. Right. And, uh, Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz and many other things prior to that. Uh, so, so that book, uh, and there's of course a selection bias here since I have a limited data set, but the, the startups that I've been involved with that have done best have kind of returned the fund many, many, many times over almost without exception have all read, uh, high output management and have a copy of it in their offices. Uh, that's now I'm sure there are many unsuccessful CEOs who also have that book, but nonetheless, uh, the effective executive, actually, I'm going to leave that one for last. So part Charlie's almanac is a great book. And I want to underscore something that you said, uh, somewhat in passing or which is really important. And I know you, you know, it's really important, which is the avoiding of making really bad mistakes. And one thing that Munger emphasizes a lot, you know, the right hand of Warren Buffett in Warren Buffett, I guess I said he has the fat, the best 60 second mind he's ever met. And I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure, but it's something that I think of a lot, uh, because I have some tendencies that are, uh, unhelpful <laughs> in, tr- in trying to be really smart and come up with clever solutions. And I, so I revisit this quote. Somebody could find the, the right version, but it's Munger who says, you know, it's amazing how successful you can become if you just consistently avoid being stupid versus trying to <laughs> outsmart everybody else. <laughs> and I think a lot about that uh, because it's so true. It's like, God, yeah, if you just kind of watch your chips and know your downside and don't make, you know, consistently make rational decisions with these lattice works and these heuristics that you mentioned, super, super helpful. Uh, and, uh, the effective executive. So the effective executive, I want to come back to for a second. And you mentioned nuts and bolts. So the effective executive I've read probably 10 or 12 times. I love this book and it's, it's very short too. It's easy to read. And you mentioned the sort of nuts and bolts. So I'm going to use this and then we'll probably jump around chronologically, but you, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, have a, a label in your email called OPP. Uh, could you explain for people what this means? Yes. So orig- I, I think originally, well, yeah, it, was, it stood for other people's problems. Mm-hmm. Um, although I made it a little nicer later, other people's priorities. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and because I have a vendetta against email, which we can, um, we can, we can dig into, but I, I mean, I've had this experience. I imagine anyone listening has had this experience like, all right, you, your inbox is overflowing. You're like, I'm finally going to deal with this thing. You plow through hundreds of emails and your reward is more emails. <laughs> right. Um, but but then to the OPP thing, I'm like, wait, then what are these things? Like, what am I doing? And then you realize that, like, you're just basically checking off items on other people's to-do lists. Mm-hmm. Um, where there's, there's you know, sort of in the abstract, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's important to be helpful. And we all 
uh, are, have been helped by and help other people. But um, you can end up in a situation um, where you're basically your to do list is a composite of other people's to do lists and, and, and your calendar and your email can often reflect that. And uh, and tying it to another. So one of the most important concepts is focus. Um, everybody understands like, yeah, yeah, focus. Um, and I imagine this is something we'll probably talk more about here. Um, but the, there are so many forces. It, it, so p- people love the idea of focus. And, and, and when it was interesting, just going back to Warren Buffett. So Warren Buffett and Bill Gates did an interview. Um, it's on, I think it's on Netflix. There's like a Warren Buffett documentary, um, which is great. I also recommend, but Anyway, they they uh, the interviewer was interviewing both Warren and Bill and was like, all right, in a word, what has made you most successful? And they both at the same time, uh, like without missing a beat, both said focus. Um, and so if we all and it's like seems so obvious, like we all know why focus is is like we don't need to be told why focus is important. But then uh, and one of the things that the effective executive uh, highlights is that there's so many, like the default for pretty much anything is to unfocus you. Um, and that's true of your inbox. Your inbox will just, is not prioritized. It's just going to like, you basically get all these requests that are other people's priorities. Um, uh, if you're working within an organization, pretty much everybody will be pulling on you to kind of feed the beast of the organization. And so it becomes very hard to do a few things well. Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot of great things about that book, but, um, but yeah, I do have an OPP folder, which I try to keep manageable, um, or find ways to, um, I I think the best is if you can find ways to be helpful, but then like involve other people in actually helping. So I, and I have a whole team of people who, um, can help me respond to, to, to those those kinds of requests. So now the OPP folder, it's not so it's not necessarily a black hole. Uh, it's not an indefinite archive necessarily, but it's when I'll get around to it. Do you have a set schedule for looking in the OPP folder or having other people do that for you? And um, and and what are the criteria? Right? If is it that anything that doesn't come from say a direct report or an investor or a family member goes into OPP or what? What are the what are the guidelines? Yeah, so the I think some people would say it feels cool even when I'm when I help. So I, I'm not great at responding to these things. So I mean, it might be if it's something that's like not a priority, then I'll try to respond in days. But sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months, sometimes sometimes I'll you'll get a response that's like, oh yeah, it's seven months later. It's like, oh here's <laughs> do you still need this? <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I I would I think it's if if it is something from a person you have a relationship with. Um, I would say, you, you, and, and there's probably other factors, but it's like, okay, is this someone who, uh, I know and where I, where I personally would be really helpful. Um, and they have done their homework and it's like, a, I think there's a certain first pass filters like that. Um, I would say, uh, there, there is no commandment from God that you have to respond to every email you receive. Um, so th- if, if it's like a cold email, cold, co- or if it's like some, from someone I don't know, or it's like a sales thing or whatever, I just, then it just goes into the black hole. Um, <laughs> or if it's something like, you know, there's a lot of folks who are like, Hey, I need, I need a mentor or how do I raise money? Or you, you can often tell by the question, like as a person, many, if not most of the requests will be something where 
the person could just do a little bit of homework and, and get a good answer. Um, and that's troubling because at first you try to help people with those kinds of things. You're like, Oh, well, you know, go to this blog post or do this thing. Um, and then you don't hear back from them and it turns out they just never followed up or just didn't do it. And so after you get burned by spending a bunch of time trying to be helpful to people who don't do their homework, who, who don't help themselves, you realize that's like not how you want to spend your life. Um, <laughs> so, so you have to, you know, I, I, th- I don't think there's a magic formula, but, but I think you want to just keep wh- what you, what you want to do is just keep that budget of your time constrained to something small. Yeah. Um, or at least or small or big, you should just at least be mindful of it. A lot of people just f- and find themselves hopelessly busy and on this treadmill responding to other people's, um, to-do lists and, and knowing no one is doing the things on their to-do list. Right. You, you, one thing you said about people doing their homework, uh, reminded me of this quote from Maria Popova who writes brain pickings, which is this incredible site, millions and millions of readers and really long form smart writing. And at some time, I think she changed it to be a little, uh, <laughs> more, uh, maybe sunny seeming, but she had a quote, I'm pretty sure on her Facebook page as the graphic, as the header at one point that said, if you haven't done, or if someone hasn't done the homework to determine, uh, whether it's a fit or not, it doesn't warrant the energy to explain why it isn't a fit or something like that, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I think is a great commandment, uh, or sort of guideline to use because so much of it, when you reinforce that type of behavior by trying to be helpful, they just come back. People tend to come back with equally nebulous or unthought through questions. Uh, do you have any other best practices or do's or do nots when it comes to, to managing email or or not using email? Yeah, I, I try not to use a lot of email um, because often if it's um, – I, I think email is, for, is good for quick, discrete tasks um, where you're holding someone up by not doing them. But if you're trying to uh, – and then I think it's also useful to like for broadcast. Like if you have something – if you have some long-form written um, direction that you want to give a group of people, um, then, then, it, then that's a good use of it. Um, but often when people get into these long email threads, uh, it's often, uh, I mean, it's, it's sometimes really fun and indulgent to get into these big, like flame wars, <laughs> but often, uh, the best way to, if, if, if you get a long email, often the best response is to talk to them in person. Um, and if you're getting a lot of little requests, it's better to just batch them up and have some kind of weekly cadence where you can deal with a lot of quick requests without having the overhead of, uh, of, um, of, of email. And I think this, these are all kind of email is just one example of a lot of different forces that can, um, take away that can kind of shatter your attention, um, or take away your time. Um, I think one of the, one of the most valuable concepts from the effective executive is, is measuring your time and or like understanding where your time goes. Um, and it is kind of shocking and hilarious, but really tragic that we all think we know exactly where our time goes. Um, but then when you measure it, you're not usually just like slightly wrong. You're like totally upside down. Yeah. Um, so um, this is a really valuable exercise for anyone, but actually like r- keeping a log of like where you spend your time um, and categorizing it. I-, I remember the first time I did this, did this I was like, all right, I'm r- running the company. It's things are going well. 
I probably, what, what do I spend my time on? Oh, back then it was probably, I was like, oh, I spend my time on product and recruiting and da da da. Um, and when I actually did the, the, the inventory, um, like I was spending like no time on those things. I was spending, uh, there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of OPP back then, <laughs> like just like <laughs> responding to fit, like following up on favors or speaking engagements that didn't really do anything for the company. And I don't, there wasn't like a lot of ter- like total fat like that, but, um, but it just my what you find is you, you write down your priorities and you look at your time and you find that things are totally mismatched. And so any mechanism you can, uh, to, um, to first understand where your time goes and then make sure your priorities actually match it. I think at the end of the day, that's conceptually what you want to do. Uh, and then just understand that, um, you're going to tend and, and then you also want to offset the, the tendency for, to be in this permanently reactive state, um, which whether that's because you're getting emails that are other people's requests or your calendar says one thing, um, usually when you your to do list gets too long, you just try to you just sort of do things randomly or just do whatever the the last thing you just respond to whatever showed up most recently in your inbox or what blinked at you or what yelled at you loudest in the last you know hour, um, and that's not a that's not effective. Um, compared to having setting your own priorities and measuring yourself against them. Um, and this is a separate topic, but I think technology needs to do a lot better job of, of helping us do that because it's really hard. And then especially as you're in any kind of organization, um, you're going to, you're going to, the, 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 the fires will get dealt with first and that's, that's not a bad thing. Um, or that that's like necessary. You can't not put out the fires, but then the important stuff, the, or I'd say Eisenhower had this exactly important yeah. versus urgent. Yeah, the matrix, uh, the, or the quadrants. I guess it was yeah. four. Yeah, the two by two is important and urgent. Like you just in um, eliminating stuff that's not important, not urgent. But but really, the biggest prior crisis of prioritization is like how do you make sure that you do um, that you elbow out time for the important, not urgent stuff because the important and urgent stuff will get taken care of, but then you end up with a lot of stuff that's not important. Or, or urgent, not important, or not important, not urgent, and you really want to elim- like cut those down as much as possible, because otherwise, a lot of the fires, if you actually do a root cause analysis, think about like why did why was this fire in the first place? When you kind of climb that ladder a couple of rungs, like why did this happen? Why did this happen? Or, or why did this happen? Because that. Well, why did that happen? Because of that. Um, you find that just a little bit of planning would have would have eliminated the need to fight that fire. Um, and so, but, and it's really easy to spend your days kind of doing the equivalent of paying, paying down a lot of like high interest credit card debt with your time by just doing, fighting all these fires and not actually putting them out at their root. Um, and so something I do on that front now is I have a, uh, there's a concept called no meeting Wednesday, which I think is popular around the Valley. Maybe it originated Facebook. I'm not sure, but we've sort of half-heartedly adopted that. And I have half-heartedly adopted that for a while, but um, I remember there was a, I'm like, I really want to do this because there's all this planning and like all these things that are important that, that where the cost of me not creating clarity for my team is super high. Um, and I sat down with my assistant at the time and I was like, Hey, I need to like, please don't schedule stuff on Wednesday. Like it's really, uh, it's really important that I work on this particular project and you know, it's just not going to get done unless there's some, unless I have like a full day or like many hours of uninterrupted time. And she's like, 
but she's like, but blah, blah, blah has this and it's important and blah, blah, blah has this and it's important and blah, blah, blah has this and it's important. And I'm like, there will never be a day where there isn't something quote important, you know, coming up. Um, and so it's dawned on me in that conversation. I'm I'm like, this shit, this is all important. Like, but it's not. And, and so, um, I was like, look, just, I really want, if, if, if it is important, just schedule it on Saturday, I'll come into the office, I'll do all those things. Mm-hmm. And then miraculously, those things kind of ended up doing themselves and <laughs> adopting no meeting Wednesday was utterly transformative in terms of, of actually being able to think and make progress on the most important things. Cause otherwise you just, you lift up your head and you find like six months have passed on some important unquote important priority of yours and there's been no progress. So think about how do you build, develop systems and how do you build in time for reflection and, and, and elbow out the time um, for for you to think and set direction? I think that's that's probably one that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make. And one of the concepts from Effective Executive is like a lot of that stuff only makes pro that doesn't that stuff doesn't make progress with a half hour slot in a meeting of ten or in a day of ten hours of half hour meetings. Like you, there's a minimum quantum of time for deep thought or deep work that you need. Um, and so anyway, th- th- there's a lot of really conceptual found uh, great conceptual foundations and effective executive about your time and effectiveness and, and disambiguating busyness from effectiveness. And then the concept of leverage and high output management, um, and a focus on output. So those, those two books have pretty much conceptually everything you need, but then implementing it in practice is a lot harder. Uh, yeah, we're we're going to talk about the practice all, all quite a bit. I think also in this conversation, I, I want to circle back to a few things you mentioned because I think they're really important. Uh, the the first is the Eisenhower matrix. I think it might be referred to as uh, which which people can look up on their own time. But the the correlating in some respects maybe exercise that I think Drucker brings up in the effective executive. <clears throat> is the jar or mason jar. And if people can visualize this very easily, but if you have a mason jar and next to the mason jar, you have a handful of large rocks that can fit into the jar. Then you have a bunch of smaller pebbles and then you have a pile of sand, all of which has come out of the jar. If you put in the big rocks first, i.e. your most critical tasks, which may or may not be urgent, then you can fit in the pebbles, then you can fit in the sand and you screw on the top and it's nice and neat. But if you put in the sand first, the whole thing falls apart, right? You, 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 you cannot take the same volume of rocks and pebbles and sand and get it into the jar. And, uh, which, which visually, uh, from, from an imagery standpoint is very easy uh, to understand. And, uh, the, the time audit though, as you described is so important for people to do because very often, even your calendar is not a good reflection of how you in fact spend your time. And, uh, if you look at say self-reporting in dietary studies where they're observational and people are going home and then coming back and reporting every two weeks or something like that, if you if you ask people to estimate their caloric consumption, it's n- almost always like thirty to forty percent off. Right? It's not a small difference, and I think the same thing happens with time, uh, really, really routinely. Um, the the blocks of time 
Actually, you know what? I'm going to get. I'm going to make a reading recommendation, and then I'm going to come back to this name, which of course you're going to be very familiar with. But for people who really want to also get a teaser for what you'll read more about in the Effective Executive, there's an essay. I might be getting it the, the headline slightly off, but you'll be able to find it. Maker schedule, manager schedule. Yep. By by Paul Graham, Paul Graham. and uh, the legendary PG, who we're going to come back to, uh, is a good place to start. But I want to rewind the clock for a second and ask you, why did you stop the SAT online prep company? So uh, I started the SAT prep company in 2004, and then I uh, went back to school, finished my undergrad, and then uh, a couple things happened. So I was was still – after graduation, I started working as an engineer at a, a network security company. Um, and I was still moonlighting on the S on accolade, the SAT prep company. Um, but I found myself in a situation where I was like, it, it was just like harder and harder to make progress on the SAT prep company. And I wasn't really sure what was going on because I, I just felt like it was just, it took more and more willpower to like pedal uh, or, or I felt like I was, I don't know whether it was because I felt like I was pedaling harder but not getting anywhere or one way or another. It just, it, but over time, it took a lot more willpower to work on it. And so I found myself procrastinating with all these like side projects. <laughs> and I mean, now I recognize all this as burnout um, and, and, and a positive, uh, there aren't a lot of good things about burnout, but sometimes it can steer the positive element is it can steer your attention to things that are more worthwhile. Um, but then I was worried cause I'm like, Oh my God, I'm like so unproductive and I'm you get, well, wallowing in this like guilt. Um, I was raised Catholic. So like this Catholic guilt of like, not, you know, I'm not working hard enough. This company's not successful enough. All my da 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 da. And it's just like totally not helpful. Um, <laughs> but, and so I'm like, Oh my God, am I broken? Like, am I not capable of working hard? What's wrong with me? Um, but then I would like, well, one good news, I started working on this like poker bot. <laughs> um, that started and, and it played with real money. Like I, I like got past the security on the poker client. This is 2006. So I figured out how to like make all that work and then watch kind of my Frankenstein moment as the bot comes to life and starts playing uh, on real poker tables. And so this idea that you can't have poker bots was like totally false. Um, but, and, and, but I was possessed. It was like, were you winning? Of, was the bot, was Frankenstein's monster winning? Well, I mean, Frankenstein, Frankenstein was like not too, not too smart in the beginning. So like there's some, you, you it, it, the, the thing starts moving the mouse and playing car, you know, playing the hand, then gets confused because it had, there's some like obscure multiple split pot or something that I just didn't write the code to handle that situation. So the thing crashes and folds your aces and you're like, okay, awesome. This is what AI looks like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was scaring my family because I was I was living in Boston, but then we have a little summer place in New Hampshire, and I was like, my family's like, okay, you know, come up this weekend. We're all going to be at, at the lake, and I'm like, okay. And then I get to the lake and I start unpacking my trunk, and I've had like three monitors and like all these computers, and I'm like, I mean, this is like a little cottage on a pond. It's not set up to be like mission control. So <laughs> I'm like putting monitors on the stove and like things. <laughs> and my parents are like, what are you doing? They were kind of used to me having all these side projects. So they're just like, I hope it's not illegal. Just, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, 
unfortunately, that side project had to stop because of that. It, like the in fall of 2006, it became like went from like kind of borderline to like very illegal to do online poker. So that um, that project ended. But um, but but so what's that about? Uh, what I took from that was like, well, first I'm like, I'm not broken. I am super capable of working hard. It's just like, I need to find something that I'm really, um, motivated by. Um, and so that was a, a relief. And then, um, uh, and then along the way, so I, I, I continued to work on the SAT prep thing, but then the kind of the, the founding story of Dropbox was, um, well, I had to use, uh, well, the founding sort of Dropbox starts with forgetting my thumb drive and going on the Chinatown bus, which I'll get to. But, um, but before that I, w- I kept having these problems working with my co-founder because, um, or collaborating with him cause we didn't have an office. Well, we, we bootstrapped the company, so we didn't raise any money and, and we didn't have an office. We didn't work out of the same place and we didn't have servers. We didn't have anything. So we would just like email stuff back and forth. Um, and I had to work on multiple computers, so I kept carrying around this thumb drive and having these elaborate scripts that would back up our the SAT prep company, kind of all of our files to a server. Um, and then eventually, I was like, "All right, well, I want to." I I graduated from college. It was about 2006, late 2006. Uh, a lot of my friends had lived in New York. And they're like, you got to come out. It's a lot of fun here. You know, just come out for the weekend. And I'm, I have a dilemma because I'm like, well, I, I need to get some stuff done for my company, but I also want to go to New York. And I'm like, maybe if I take the Chinatown bus, uh, or if I ride the bus, I can get, I can have four and a half hours each way. So then I'll have ten hour. Uh, ten hours should be enough time to do what I need to do. So you know, you know, all the elaborate rationalizations we we come up with. And so I'm like, okay, well, if, I, if I take the bus, that's I'm I'm green light to go to New York. Then I get on the bus and I've forgotten my thumb drive. <laughs> so, and Prob- then kind of pro- back, problem. Yeah. Yeah. Back to self-flagellation. I'm like, Oh, I can't, I'm like, I keep doing this. I suck. You know, I'm not like, I hate my thumb drive. I'm like, I hate me. Um, <laughs> um but I'm like, Oh my God, I, I just cannot deal with this problem. I'm like, I never, this is so stupid. Like I'm so sick of like, email like emailing myself a file like what is the question for which there, there's no question for which that's the right answer i'm like what, think of the physical equivalent of that like taking an envelope putting something in it putting your own name in the to and from putting it in the mailbox and getting it back i'm like this is what we do to like manage our files um uh that carrying around a thumb drive all the things we used to have to do and i'm like i never want to have this problem again so i on the bus um I opened up the editor and started writing some code um, in Python that basically was this seed that sprouted into Dropbox. But it's weird, so I, and I was just like totally possessed with that problem um, because I'm an engineer. Again, I'm I'm like an engineer by upbringing. Um, my favorite classes at school, other than some of the stuff we've talked about, was or like algorithms, distributed systems. Um, you know, and I found myself at a crossroads where I'm like, look, I love standardized tests as much as any human possibly can, I guess. But it was uh, a couple things happened. So one is I like pause. I'm like, OK, I'm, I'm working on this company. I'm kind of burning out. Um, part of why is because I, I thought about like, OK, even if all of my dreams come through and like everything we hope for happens with this SAT prep company, then I'm like, then, then, then what? And I'm like, I'm like king of SAT prep. <laughs> right. 
And there's nothing, I mean, I, I think that's fine. And like people need help with these things. And, and, but I'm like, that's not what I want to do. I mean, I'm just picturing this kind of like cardboard crown. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and that's only if everything goes well, or that's like if all of our dreams come true. So I'm like, I need to do something else. Um, and so I ended up with these side projects and then found myself getting totally obsessed with, uh, first the poker bot, but then even more so with Dropbox. And so sometimes it's hard, it, you know, like how do you deal with burnout? How do you know if you're doing the right thing? Like these are really hard questions. I mean, for me sort of listening, sometimes a lot of procrastination is unhealthy, but sometimes that little voice is leading you in a much better direction. Mm-hmm. So I want to circ. I want to bring this back to the dot, dot, dot that I left after Paul Graham. Uh, and we can certainly go in any possible direction you want to take it. But <clears throat> for people who don't know Paul Graham, maybe you could, maybe you could describe Paul Graham, certainly as close to a demigod as, as one can probably get among many, many young entrepreneurs and older entrepreneurs yeah. in Silicon Valley. Who, who is Paul Graham? What is Y Combinator? And can you describe your first meeting with Paul Graham? Yes. Um, so Paul Graham is best known as the uh, as one of the the founders of of Y Combinator. So they are, which is an incubator for startups. They and they were our first investors, and and they also invested in a lot of great companies, you know, including um, Airbnb, Stripe, uh, a lot of them. And uh, Paul was before starting Y Combinator, he had written. Uh, he, he was an entrepreneur himself, so he started a company called Via Web back in the dot com or the, the first dot com boom and sold it and then he had a lot of really provocative and insightful essays on on startups that gained a big following um and he was also one of the creators um um or at least was very early in the conversation around uh using uh bayesian methods using this kind of math to do spam filtering so he's also one of the originals or one of the architects, or at least involved in that community of people who would figure out how to get rid of spam. Um, and that's actually how I first heard about him. But then he started writing about startups and then um, ran this experiment that became Y Combinator. Um, but it was actually called the Summer Founders Program. And I was digging through some old email about it because um, I this was the precursor to Y Combinator. Uh, I applied with my SAT prep company to that and was rejected. Um, but then managed to get into Y Combinator a couple of years later. So, um, so I guess the first virtual meeting of applying to be funded uh, didn't go well. Um, the first in-person meeting was probably. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on, yeah. pause. Why didn't Why didn't the virtual meeting go well? Well, we didn't really virtually meet. It was just sort of like you, it was like a college admissions thing. You, you, we, you, you. It's open application. Anybody who wants to submit an application for. Uh, for the Summer Founders Program, which is basically, it was like the same thing as Y Combinator. Like, you get a little bit of money and, and all come together. Um, it was like sort of Y Combinator version one. Um, but I applied and didn't get in, and I was super disappointed. Um, so that didn't go well. And then, but a couple of years later, I wanted to apply again with Dropbox. And this is skipping ahead a little bit, but um, I had, so I, I had the idea for Dropbox, um, started working on it. And I wanted to do YC because a good friend of mine, or for, for many reasons, but another, another friend of mine, uh, this guy, Adam Smith, uh, no relation, um, who was one of my friends from college, 
uh, he did YC in 2006 and had an awesome experience. And I had like a front row seat to that and saw how much fun they were having. And then their company was just in like a much faster trajectory because of YC. And, and I'm like, oh my God, I, I want something like that. Um, but then I, so I started thinking about applying for YC with Dropbox. Um, and one of the good things about coming from college admissions is you sort of learn how these admissions processes work. Um, and YC was not really that different. You have a lot of people applying for a few spots. Um, and so in addition to getting the scores and the grades and everything, one of the things you can do is try to stand out, uh, and do something kind of unique. And so I'm like, all right, well, maybe to get in, help me get into YC, I'll try to put a video out about how Dropbox works. Um, and Y Combinator also had their own, they had just started this new, this news site called Hacker News, um, which is kind of like Reddit for startup news. Um, and, uh, and I'm like, what is, I'm, and I thought, I'm like, I had an, I, I had a hunch. So I'm like, what do you, what do I, what does Paul do all day? I think he probably does what most of us do, which is just hit refresh on Hacker News all the time. So I'm like, maybe if I put a video on Hacker News, maybe I can get in front of the Dean of Admissions here, get Paul's attention and, and go from there. It actually worked. Um, so I made, and, and, and I, I, there's a concept from uh, a book that I had read on that roof called Guerrilla Marketing, which is like, how do you get attention and, u- and users for your product if you have no... Yeah, it's like Jay have, Conrad Levinson or something like that. I, yeah. I forget, something like that. Um, yeah. It's like, how do you do that when you have no money? So, uh, and, and so they're like all these, so it's the, the tactic of putting a video on Hacker News or, or creating a viral video is, that was a seed that was planted by reading Guerrilla Marketing. Um, and so, but I made a screencast, which is like a, a like a three minute demo of how Dropbox works. Cause I wasn't ready to ship the code, but I wanted some feedback and I wanted to get into YC. Um, and that video both got me into YC and it got me a co-founder. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. So, uh, coming back to, so then what happened with this meeting with Paul? Uh, so I put the video on Hacker News. It hits the top of Hacker News for multiple days. Um, it's a long time still to be at the top yeah, of Hacker that News. Yeah. Hap- that can't happen anymore because of, for a bunch of reasons. But but it was like, a, I was pretty happy about that. Um, and then uh, I'm like, okay, this is, so far the plan seems to be working. And I'm just like, keep hitting refresh on my inbox. I'm like, maybe, I wonder if Paul has seen it. And then t- t- lo and behold, I get an email from Paul Graham saying like, Hey, it looks pretty cool. Um, but you need a co-founder because they did, especially at the time they didn't like single founders applying and I didn't have a co-founder yet. This was, this was before I met Arash. Um, so I was like, Oh God. Um, because the pro- the only problem was I agreed with him. The only problem was the application deadline was, had already passed. I had already applied. Um, and the interviews were in like two weeks. And so I needed a co-founder in two weeks, which is like saying like, Hey, I know you're not dating anyone, but you need to get married by. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, And so a hilarity ensued, but, uh, but then I was, I I flew out to San Francisco. I'm like, I'm like trying to shake the trees for any co-founder candidates I hadn't thought of because for one reason or another, all of my close friends and people that would have been the, the folks that I would have leaned on, like the timing wasn't good. They didn't want to do it, whatever else. And so, um, but I, I found another friend of mine, I was actually get managed to get a friend of mine interested out in San Francisco. Um, but he's like, okay, I'm interested. I don't know, but I want to know what PG thinks before I make a decision. 
So I'm like, okay, great. Um, and I'm like, it's a Tuesday. My flight, it's a Tuesday at like 1 p.m. My flight back to Boston leaves at like 10 um, or 11. So I'm like, oh, actually, wait, this is, YC has its dinners on Tuesdays. Maybe I could just like drive down to Mountain View and just like pitch Paul. Maybe that would <laughs> So I get to Zipcar. I like fly down 101. Um, and like the plan was like working pretty well. I got it. I, I got to YC. I went in the office. It was as expected. People were just chilling and kind of um, there was some downtime. And so um, and so I go like knock on or, like I go I go to Paul's office and sure enough, he's in there. He's just chilling. I'm like, hey, Paul, do you have a minute? Um, I just want to, you know, I just want to show you something I'm working on. And he's like, nope, I'm busy. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, look, we both, I'm, I'm like, I, I, I can almost see your screen. I know you're just like hitting, you're just like reading Hacker News right now. <laughs> Not actually busy. Um, but it's like awkward. So I step outside and I talk to Jessica, um, who was an, uh, his his partner at, in co-founding YC together and, and, and his wife. Um, and I talked to Jessica. I'm like, hey, look, Jessica. And, and, and I had met Jessica before. So I'm like, Jessica, I'm really sorry to, to bother you guys. I just have a co-founder who was like looking for some feedback from Paul to make his co-founder decision. You know, I got a flight back in like four hours. I, I'd swear I'll, I'll, I won't take more than 60 seconds of Paul's time. Do you think it's okay if um, if I go in there? And she's like, "Oh, yeah, Drew. Of course. Like, no problem. Like, Paul's not doing anything. Just like, just he'll it'll be fine." <laughs> so I go back in there, and it's like detonation. It's like I, I, get, I say like three words, and Paul's like, "No." He's like, "I'm not going to see your stupid demo. The whole reason we have an application process is so that randos like you don't just like show up here and bother us." It's like, no, please leave. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Paul. I'm like, ooh, like my friend, that's, I'm like, this is not going to be good. I'm like, this is a rough, rough return to San Francisco. <laughs> so needless to say, the co-founder situation did not work out. <laughs> you were like, there. Paul's, Paul's thinking about it. Yeah, Let I'm me like, get back to you. <laughs> well, I did, I did meet with the dean of admissions. He just thinks I'm an asshole. <laughs> so that was I think tough. he's I think he's coming around. Let yeah. me get back to you. That was a tough plane ride home. Um but it's good training. Like this is you know this this is you got to this is like the new normal if you're starting a company. Um so well, let me let me just hit pause for one second. What were you what were you saying to yourself on the way back? Like what was the self-talk on the plane ride back? I was like I have I could not have like effed this up any worse if I had tried. <laughs> um, cause like now I don't have a co-founder and I'm like, I might've been able to get in if I just like hadn't like maximally pissed off Paul. Anyway, now I have no co-founder, no YC and probably no company. Um, and I have like two weeks left to like resolve this, um, or maybe a week left to resolve it. But anyway, not a lot of time. Um, so it was bad. Yeah. I was like, I don't really see how this all kind of lives happily ever after. Here. <laughs> so, so then what happens? So then, but my kind of shaking the trees in San Francisco did help. So I met, it turned out I, I, I met a 
a guy named Kyle, Kyle Vogt, um, who I had met at the MIT Entrepreneurs Club. So he's an MIT student. He dropped out. He, or he had just dropped out to do Justin TV, which became Twitch. Um, and then Kyle then later started Cruise, which did great. Too. So Kyle, Kyle has done well. Um, and then I was complaining to Kyle. I'm like, hey, Kyle, like, I need a co-founder. I, you know, Is there anyone you'd recommend? And he he recommended me to. Uh, it turned out that Kyle and Arash were floor mates at East Campus at MIT. Um, and so he's like, "Yo, you should talk to Arash." And then a, a day or two later, I got an email from Arash saying, "Hey, um, he was like a he was a, a senior undergrad at MIT, computer science student." Um, and uh, and he was like, "Hey, I, I got this email from Arash and it said like, hey, I saw your video on Hacker News.'" And Kyle said, you're looking for a co-founder, you know, maybe we should talk. And then it was kind of insane. Like we met in the student center. Um, maybe we got coffee one more time. And then he drops out of school. Um, he's like a senior. He drops off with a semester left. You know, I was figuring this is going to be like a process, right? I'm going to have to like talk to his parents and like reassure them. But no, like we, we hang out for like, two hours and then he then like then we the two of us commit to like spending most of our waking lives together for the foreseeable future i don't think either of us really understood that at the time um fortunately it all has worked out great but um so but but against all odds so arash and i team up um i think paul forgot about his meeting with me or didn't like put the two together so we we did our interview um and we got into yc (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, and it was funny because like we, and then we're doing the YC interview, we're milling around waiting for, we go down in the morning, we go get lunch, um, we come back to the car, our, our car got broken into and our laptops got stolen. Oh God. But fortunately all of our stuff was on Dropbox. <laughs> so we were like patient zero for all this. And then we got the happy phone call from, from Paul saying, Hey, we want to fund you guys. And. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It was, it was nuts. <laughs> so I, I don't know if this has changed, but for some period of time, uh, I think it's probably still the case, but, but you could correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, Dropbox was far and away the most successful investment that Y Combinator had ever made. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, certainly Dropbox has done incredibly well. At what point, did you go to go to Paul's office, knock, knock, hey, Paul, like in brackets, now we're friends. <laughs> By any chance, do you remember when I came in during Tuesday on a Tuesday, not too long ago, da, 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 da. did you ever bring that up with him or did he learn about it through some other means? I like to remind him about it every couple, every year or two. <laughs> I mean, first, he's like totally embarrassed. Like he didn't. Like he didn't put any of these things together. He didn't know. He didn't remember it. Um, he's like, I was so awful that this happened. So the, the mostly it's just they they both Paul and Jessica turn like bright red and they don't like to talk about it, which is like why I like to keep poking at it every now and then. Um, it's all. I mean, it's all good. I would have done this. Yeah, thing of course. Him. Like, yeah, God. yeah. Well, he did tell you I'm busy, right? Yeah, I was super obnoxious, <laughs> but you know, was dropped. Yeah. Was Dropbox the original name of the company? Yeah. It was? Wow. So so just from day one, you had the name that stuck. No, for you. Getting the domain, it was getdropbox.com. 
getting the Dropbox.com domain name was, oh my god, that was a that was a journey. Um, so there was okay, I don't know. I'm, I'm like I'm like starting to shake a little bit. Going, I don't know. I don't know how uh, illuminating this the this story is, but it, no, it, let's talk about it because people, <laughs> pe- pe- I mean, people run into this stuff. I'm okay. sure. I'm sure we can. I'm sure we can pull some lessons from yeah. it. Yeah. So. I I remember get Dropbox. Yeah. So Arash and I fell in like, I, so the, the 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 name Dropbox actually the behind the music version like the story behind the name is also probably unintuitive or, or like not what you'd expect. So um you asked what am I like what was I like in high school? Um and the answer is like basically he's a huge nerd who likes computer games and that's true. Uh one of the things we would do is we'd all bring our uh, we, we would like a bunch of friends and I would bring our computers to someone's house and we'd play games. And, um, so back in the day, these things were called land parties. Um, they are about as cool <laughs> as they jump. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, you all show up and play till you play till sunrise and, and, um, and so on. But you bring a bunch of people together and often someone doesn't have the, the right maps or the right patch or the right whatever. And so we had a convention, like you just create a folder, called your Dropbox that's shared and writable by anyone. Um, and that's how we would exchange files, um, so that people could play games. Um, and then it's, I remember this, it was like Christmas, 2006. I'm trying to come up with a name for Dropbox or didn't have a name. Then I, uh, the initial name I had like some, uh, what the name before, I was I was busy photoshopping a logo. The initial iteration of it was Folder Anywhere, which <laughs> catchy, catchy, which, yes, which just <laughs> was, which was probably the first indica- indication that I had a brilliant future in marketing and talent <laughs> yeah. for this. <laughs> and then, so I'm like in Photoshop trying to make a logo for Folder Anywhere, and I'm like, like of course, the, probably the logo is like a literal folder or something, it, like totally inane, and then. I start and I'm like, and and I, you know, believe it or not, folderanywhere.com was actually available. So I, <laughs> I was the proud owner of folderanywhere.com. Then I realized that I did a search and I found there's a company called Files Anywhere. Hmm. And I was like, no, like I can't, I, that's, it's like, I can't, now I can't name it folder anywhere. And so I'm, I'm sort of, I'm on aim talking to one of my friends from high school and I'm like, God, I don't know what to call this thing. You know, folder anywhere is taken. <laughs> like maybe I should just, you know, maybe maybe I should call it Dropbox, like from the, you know, from from high school or from land parties. And he's like, okay, whatever. And and then um, and then at, at Dropbox.com was not available, uh, so I got getDropbox.com. But then, um, so we just lived with getdropbox.com for a while. I tried to, you, you can sometimes look up who owns a domain and, and contact them. And so I, try, I actually did. I managed to, I managed to give the guy a call. Um, and I'm like, Hey, are you dropbox.com? You know, are you, are you using it? And the, the guy was like, uh, yes, I'm using it for a project. I'm like, okay, well, do you have any interest in like selling it or, you know, coming up with some kind of arrangement? He's like, no. And I'm like, okay, cool. So that's February. Uh, 2007, and then, then we then then we get distracted with the whole getting into YC, finding a co-founder, all that, doing YC, and then I land and then we come, move to San Francisco in September, and I'm like, we really need to get this domain name, um, 
And unfortunately, Arash and I had totally fallen in love with it. So like, it, it, we weren't really, we kind of only had one plan. Um, <laughs> By the way, that's, that's called a great uh, negotiating position. <laughs> yeah, awesome. It, it worked about as well as you'd expect. So we, so I'm like, well, since the zip car and show up at someone's house worked so well the first time, we're going to do it again. So it turned out the guy lived in Pleasanton. Um, and he was an entrepreneur. Like, here's someone who's like nearby who should be sympathetic to our cause, at least to some extent. Um, and I'm like, and I call him, and I'm like, how's that project going? Because there's obviously no project. And and he's just kind of being difficult. Um, and so I'm like, I'm like, okay, God damn it. We, we get off the phone, and I'm like, all right, Arash, let's just like show up at this guy's house. <laughs> let's just see what happens. Um, so uh, jump in another zip car. We go to the, the we drop we go to the, like the the corner store and get their like most expensive bottle of twenty dollars champagne we could get. Uh, get in the zip car and go to his house. And um, it's like nine at night, so <laughs> I, I don't know. For some, this seemed like a good idea at the time. So we 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 show up and. And then he was kind of, I think he was kind of shocked, kind of amused, like lets us in. Um, we have a, we, we start talking. He's like, uh, we're like, hey, look, you know, we, we're, we're, we're pretty serious about this thing we're doing. You know, we'd love, um, you know, if, if it's true that you're not actually doing anything with the domain, you know, like help, help us understand what you're trying to accomplish. Not, not in an obnoxious way, just like, you know, but, but at least consider this alternative where, you know, we use Dropbox.com. You know, we've got some really good folks who are excited about this and involved, whether it's Y Combinator or we just gotten funding from Sequoia, our first venture capital investor, who's one of the best in the world. And so we're like, Sequoia are you, are you, are you told him that? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Nice. We're just really building up our leverage here. Um, so yeah, this would be called hemorrhaging leverage. Although at the same time, you know, these these uh, the frameworks don't completely account for everything because if you don't sure. if you don't yeah. actually help them understand why they should be interested, and you hold all your cards to the vest, then nothing happens, and that's what we right. experienced over the last seven months. So we're like, um, okay, so like at least get sketch out a case that a reasonable person would look at and be interested in. So, um, and then he's like, um, cool, uh, it's interesting. I got to talk to a friend. Um, and you know, why don't you, why don't we touch base, uh, soon? And I'm like, I'm like, great. Well, it's like Friday. I'm like, well, it was like a Friday night, I think. And I'm like, we'll be, we'll be back on Monday. Um, and we're, we're in the ride back going over the Bay bridge and I'm like, holy shit, we might actually be able to get this thing. Like this guy has been impenetrable and so difficult. Like we're both kind of in awe and just like, this is such a positive thing. So we go back on Monday and He's just like, yep, thought about it, not interested, thanks, bye. And we're like, are you, are you kidding? Is this, is this for real? Like, no, I'm like, are you, I'm like, where is this going to go? Are you going to like, are you going to bequeath this domain to your children? Like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just like, totally wouldn't budge. And so that was a much sadder drive back. Um, <laughs> so then this guy, so, and then there's just kind of nothing for a couple of years. Uh, or for a year, um, and then we launched Dropbox. We put a we, we launched Dropbox publicly, um, and then all these confused people start going to Dropbox.com, uh, and 
and presumably start trying to get, and they, they wanted to get into the beta. So this was, this was later in the year. So they, they, they and so they, he starts getting all these emails from people, I think probably March, 2008, um, who are looking to get into the Dropbox beta. Um, and then he, he does, God, he, he, and I'll end the story in a reasonable amount of time, but we like, <laughs> so he, he, then he kind of goes dark. He puts a privacy shield up on the domain, then puts up an AdWords landing page. So like Dropbox.com, <laughs> like there was a no, it went from like a GoDaddy parking page to like a Google AdSense for domains page. Um, which was a problem because then we're like, oh my God, now this guy is like totally cashing in like it's basically you go to dropbox.com it, it was basically adwords for all of our competitors oh god um and so i'm just <laughs> thinking of like i'm like what the hell are we going to do about this like our investors think we're idiots for not changing the name we're doing all these like pointless branding exercises that um did, did not go well like to try to find an alternate name so i'm just like oh my god like what what are we going to do and the answer was read the federal copyright code and uh, trademark code. Um, and I became kind of an expert in cyber trademark law, <laughs> like an armchair <laughs> expert in this stuff. And it turns out you can't just like get a domain from someone for no reason. Like you can't just be like, oh, you're not using it. So therefore it's mine anymore. You can be like, oh, you're not using that land. Give it to me. Um, right. But it is also illegal for someone to intentionally confuse um, uh, confuse customer con- confuse your customer. So um, I can't just like say that we're um, you know I can't sell paper towel or towel or I can't sell like Kleenex with three E's to confuse people or whatever. So like, intentionally confusing consumers is a problem. Um, and we had another whole odyssey trying to get the Dropbox trademark, which oh, that's not as interesting. But I'm like, we had a problem. We, we didn't actually have the registered trademark either. Um, but he was now making money from infringing our, our common law trademark rights. And so I'm working with this crazy trademark, like, like uh, trademark and domain attorney. And so we sue him for federal for, for trademark infringement. Um, and so that got his attention. Um, and, and and, which we would not have done, like we're not, we weren't just trying to push him around. I mean, it was really, he was trying to profit off of confusing our customers. So we were for sure got on our high horse after that. Um, and I mean, that was a comical whole experience, but uh, eventually he's like, okay, okay, okay. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll like, let's, this is, there's no point to have this lawsuit, you know, I'll give you guys, or I'll sell you guys the domain. I'm like, okay, well, like we can offer you stock or cash. He's like, I'll just take cash. Um, so we paid him 300 grand, got the domain, lived. I mean, that, that was such a, like sending that first email from uh, Dropbox.com to Paul and Jessica was a huge triumph. Um, but what even, it, I, <laughs> we offered him stock at that, like at the, what would have been at the seed round. Oh my God! Be worth like multiple hundreds of millions of dollars today. <laughs> <laughs> oh but I, but I think so man! What, I think what you can take away from this is like there's just no manual for that, right? You gotta right. just kind of wing it, and there are a lot of things that are the equivalent even today of just kind of getting in the zip car with a bottle of champagne and hoping for the best, and and um, 
you know, sometimes you'll get really good cards, sometimes you'll get really bad cards, but you just got to kind of roll with it. Um, and so, um, between finding a co-founder, getting the domain, each each of those is definitely those are definitely memorable points along the journey. Well, we were chatting a bit before we started recording about <clears throat> the psychological aspects of, say, prepping for starting a company, and I want to tie that to a company you mentioned earlier, which is Reddit. So you, you mentioned that Hacker News was sort of Reddit for the the computer science slash hacker subset, right? And I, I remember having Alexis, the co-founder, on this podcast, <clears throat> and he told me about meeting really early on with an executive at Yahoo. They were really excited. They went in. And they shared their numbers, and the executive said, "Wow, something along the lines of, oh my God, you're just a rounding error for Yahoo. (laughs) And it was so insulting that Alexis took, like, you are a rounding error, I think it was, and put it on the wall in the office to motivate, (laughs) right? But that is one of several different responses that that are possible, right? I mean, there are are certainly people who would be crushed by that. It could be the end. Uh, and I don't, re- I don't remember exactly where this quote is from, but I want to talk about when this came out and how you, what the self-talk was. So the, uh, okay, this, there's an article being written about Dropbox, and I think the quote was, quote, fortunately, the Dropbox founders are too stupid to know everyone's already tried this, end quote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when did that happen? And... Like, how did you and anyone else involved respond to it? Yeah, so that was very early. Um, I, I would say it was probably within the first year. And uh, probably the most – well, I think it, what happens is you'll get – I mean, I just think that even back to that first video that I put on Hacker News, a lot of the – actually, a lot of the commentary was positive. People were like, I would use something like this. It's good. Like, And, and, and it was really – um, uh, and that was really encouraging. So, so on the one hand, half the peanut gallery is saying that the other half is saying like listing all these reasons why it's been tried before and won't work. Um, that, and then even if it does work like Microsoft, Google, everybody's going to kill us. Um, and here's why it's never been a business. And here are all these other ones that have never succeeded. Da, 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 da. And the thing is, I agreed with them. I was like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> like, I don't really see how we survive as, I mean, you know, in 2007, I don't see how we kind of make it through, you know, to Mount Doom <laughs> you know, as our little like plucky band of uh, the two of us. Um, so and then invariably, every investor we talked to would raise similar concerns. So the, the, the feedback was all pretty negative. So um, it's easy to say, like, oh, just ignore it all. But you you kind of have to you have to be balanced. So on the on the one hand, we did get encouraging feedback in the beginning. So people were like, "Drop this is cool. I will use this. It sounds great." Um, you know, and, and I knew that I needed it. And then I wasn't like trying to create a billion dollar company. I was trying to just like solve a problem. And so I think setting your sights low in the beginning, ironically, can be helpful because you're not putting so much pressure on yourself. I was just like, "Look, if For I build sure. a cool thing, it'll be one of this is just another side project and a number of side projects and like." Let me not suffocate it by putting all these crazy expectations on it. Um, so I think that's pretty important. Um, and then people are like, oh, when did you know it was a, a success? It's like, well, it was sort of a different point. It, it, it was like the goalpost for success kept successively moving back. So 
even just having a video was a big milestone and launching the private beta was a big milestone and there were a bunch of milestones, but so it was, it was sort of a continuous project process more than like, Oh, is this one moment in time? Um, but yeah, there were people who had very good uh, arguments about why this wasn't going to be successful. And that's why I think, um, you have to have, you have to have, sort of have alter you have to have both thick skin and thin skin. Or you have to have kind of get that balance right. Because if you just have, if you just ignore all of the feedback and dismiss it all, then you're pro- you're probably going to have some kind of blind spot and you're going to, you're going to miss some important information. So, um, just because they came, but, but just because they came to that conclusion doesn't mean that their assumptions were all correct. And that's why, you also need to have enough thick skin to know when to like um, when to be a little bit dismissive or not listen to everything. Um, uh, and part of what helps with that is having conviction and conviction that comes from being able to think from first principles um, and pay less attention to people's conclusion, like the outputs of people's conclusions as much as the inputs into those conclusions. So what does that mean? Well, people said that, okay, the Dropbox is not going to be successful because people have tried it a million times. Um, and that is, that is true. And anybody who, that's like factually true. It's not, you can't debate that. Um, but that would have been true for mobile. Like every phone, every mobile thing before the iPhone or every mobile software company, every app, like w- was a total failure before the iPhone world changes. Suddenly it's the right time. And so um, if you study history of technology or history of business, you realize, okay, that, that argument is not in and of itself um, causal. Um, so the, the, what you want to answer is like, well, why is that incorrect? It's like, well, actually, um, there, there are a lot of good ideas that are, are bad ideas for a while because the timing is wrong, but then the timing becomes right because of some discontinuity in tech and, like, and, and books like The Innovator's Dilemma or others will illustrate that. And so if you really understand these if you understand that's why it's important to build these mental models because if you, you were like all right this is my framework for how the world works and i keep refining it um what these pe- people are missing the key conclusion from that that just because something has happened before like has failed before doesn't mean it will always fail in the future it can still fail but um but that kind of conviction came from an understanding or a, a belief and a, and a worldview and framework of like all right here's how here's how i think business works or here's how to think about an idea like ours um, so, but that said, it's not, so, so I think there's a, how do you receive advice and how do you sort of develop first principles thinking, which we've talked about, but then like, that doesn't make it feel any better when people are like, your idea sucks and you're going to fail. Um, or so, even worse than that, like you are stupid, right? You're I mean, it's really yeah. at super ad hominem. Right? right. Um, yeah, people are not. So first of all, I think you have to have a sense of like, this is normal. Um, like they, they just don't take it too personal. Like that's, that's the thing you, you want to take it. Uh, you do want to take, you want to receive the feedback and like try to extract the kernel of that's useful from it, but not feel obligated to, to accept the whole thing. Um, I think more broadly, you just have to, whether it's getting criticism or just a lot of the thing, I think one of the harder things about running the company in general was I just remember being in the beginning being like, Oh my God, like, all right, now we, uh, like Sequoia has decided to invest in our company. Against the odds, now Sequoia has decided to invest. They're, they're writing us a check for a million dollars. I hope they realize that, like, I've never, I've not, I haven't, like, really done this before. 
and like, oh God, like that million dollar, it's great to kind of cash that check, but oh man, they're going to be looking for that money back at some point. Like, what are we going to do? Um, and so that's not, that wasn't the, I mean, there were probably a lot of things going on in my head at the time, but, and then like, oh my God, I've never really built a successful company before. I don't, I've never managed people really, you know, the idea of Dropbox being a hundred person company is like terrifying. Like I'm, this treadmill is just going to go faster and faster until like I'm violently thrown off of it. Like, how am I going to deal with that? Um, and, and a lot of me also thought like, okay, well I'll just like build the company until it's like successful enough or makes enough money where I just don't have to worry about money anymore. And then I like, I, like as soon as I get to that, I don't know, this was just like some kind of theory. I'm like, all right, as soon as I get to that level of success, I'll just stop and like, just so I don't screw it up. Um, but then interestingly that the, that goalpost kept moving back and moving back and moving back. Cause I think it, it, it's, it's never really been about the money, but you can read in the Y Combinator application, like that's now public, uh, where we put that out there. And I'm like, I would, there, I would like, I would, if I had a million dollars after taxes after six months of work, I'd consider that a pretty good deal. Um, so, um, so, but, 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 but more on the, 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 the more on just like that, what do you do when you're like, oh my God, this is like pretty uncomfortable. I've never done anything like this before. Um, I might screw it up. You need, so your instinct will to be to, um, run away from that feeling. And what you need to learn to do is run towards it because that's just going to keep, keep happening, keep happening. I'm like, you know, we're going to drive, show up at this guy's house. I don't know. Maybe we'll get arrested, I don't know, but no, we're going to do it. I don't think that's the best example. Uh, <laughs> there's just so many things where it's like, you just got to kind of figure it out and, and keep going. Um, and Ben, one of the great things from that, that Ben wrote in his book, the hard thing about hard things is the hardest part of being a CEO is managing your psychology. Um, and I didn't really know what that meant at the time. I think I, I have a much better sense now. So I think the first thing is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, because, and, and, and you think about principles like Ray Dalio's book, he's like pain plus reflection equals progress. Uh, people love the progress part or they love growth, but they don't love the pain part and they don't bother to do the reflection part. So, um, uh, so understanding that that is in the sort of zooming out and understanding, like depersonalize it. It's like, it's not really you. This is just like the process of growth. It will be painful or think of your journey as more of an adventure rather than like a final exam where you have to get everything right and you only got one shot. Um, I think that's, that's pretty important. And then second is, all right, you have to, now it's, it's, everybody likes the idea of growth and pushing yourself, but you also have to take care of yourself. Like, um, you have to find ways to metabolize stress and avoid burnout. Um, and for some reason people just, they, they just use the one tool of like pushing themselves harder and then they break. Um, and, you know, you wouldn't do that to your car. You wouldn't do that with, like, a musical instrument. So why would you do that to yourself, right? So yeah. um, just, to, just to pause for a second, yeah. I, I, I recall very distinctly every time we've stayed at the same hotel or been at the same event and I've gone to the gym, I've almost always seen you in the gym. Uh, I mean, it seems like you have, just as a component of that, a, a, a physical practice to care for the machine, so to speak. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm the best like athlete by any stretch, but I but it's really important. Like, you have to do enough so that you don't break down. Um, and so and and you got to figure out what that is for you. And um, 
and I know that's something you really care about. And, and the, the advice you have to offer your readers is going to be much better than whatever advice I have. Uh, but you, you need to do something, some kind of routine and stick to it. Um, but just the basics of, you know, I think some of the stupid, the dumbest advice that people get is like, you know, not sleeping or wearing like, or just pursuing this idea that, that successful people somehow work like 70, 80 hour weeks. And that's the norm. Um, there are a number of problems with that. First, it's like usually not true. It's usually more of an indication the person's either lack of awareness about where they're spending their time or lack of effectiveness if they need, um, if their only tool in the shed is like work more hours. Right. Uh, because just think about that. Like, you you know, there that, that is that has a ceiling in terms of how much of an advantage that can give you. Like, yes, you want to work hard. Um, but if your only advantage is like being able to work 20% more hours than someone who's merely very committed, then you're not going to have outsized results. Um, and you also, I mean, so there's, anyway, I have a, I have a, I think this meme that people, that successful people work hundred hour weeks or something is, is both false and super harmful. Um, most of the most, the most successful people I know actually work, I mean, they have crunch times where they're super busy, but they otherwise have a work week that looks more normal than not. Um, and so that, that was something I didn't realize when I was, when I was starting out. Um, but the basics of sleep, eating well, self, self care, exercise, putting it on your calendar, not just wishful thinking and hoping it'll sort of happen in the spare moments. Like if you can't see, um, these things on your, if you can't see your priorities in your calendar, if you can't see your gym time on the calendar, it doesn't exist. Um, totally. So, uh, and then, and then I think like self-awareness, uh, there's probably a lot more we could talk about how to, how to metabolize stress and avoid burnout. Um, but I think ha- having like taking care of the basic, like having a good foundation and, and setting healthy boundaries is pretty important and having a sustainable workload. Um, the self-awareness is pretty important. Um, and being willing to like shine a hard light on yourself, um, and embracing that. So for me, coaching has been super helpful. Um, coaching meaning you have like an executive coach yeah, or I've had different mm-hmm. ones over time. Um, and, 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 and really, and, and like I, I go through that experience, I'm like, okay, I'll give this a shot. Some of my friends have had, um, have, have spoken positively about it. Um, but it's a little, it's, um, well, I'd say this the first part. I, I remember my first coaching experience and like getting, they do the 360 and then you sit down and you do your review of your results. So sorry to pause. Yeah. So 360 for people who don't know is where you have any superiors, peers, employees, etc., people who know you really well, interviewed about your strengths, weaknesses, and so on. Would you? Is that right. is that fair to say? Yep. Yeah. Well, okay. you get all this feedback from all these, you know, everybody you work closely with. So it's kind of overwhelming because um, you, you get a lot of it, um, <laughs> and it's not all good. So. Uh, <laughs> And actually, to this day, like opening those documents and like reading all the 360 feedback is one of the most painful, like human experiences you can have. Um, maybe that's a little hyperbolic, but but it's not fun. It, it's at least not fun. Uh, it's not something yeah. that I look forward to, um, but it's important. So um, because you need to know, like it's much better to just like know and be able to do something about it. Like Ben, Ben, Ben's been a great friend and mentor, and he's like. He was reflecting. Uh, he, he told me a quote that one of his mentors told him, which is that God gave us all weaknesses. It's a blessing to find out about them. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sobering, you know, <laughs> um, 
but so, but, but I went through the, you know, I just remember my first, first coaching experience briefly, like, you know, I sit you down they're like, first page is usually like, here are your strengths. And I'm like, okay. He's like, my coach was like, you are really good. You really, you really care about people. You love building great relationships. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds good. Um, you're really creative. You like new ideas. I'm like, all right, I'm enjoying this coaching thing so far. Uh, he's like, you're really comfortable in chaos. Like, it doesn't bother you that this stuff is like so crazy. I'm like, yep. It's like, okay, da da da. And then flip to the next page. All right, now, like, it's never weaknesses, development areas. That's right. right. Or opportunity, opportunities, opportunities for improvement. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, let's, let's hear about some opportunities. Um, he's like, you are really conflict avoidant. Um, you don't. Uh, make hard people decisions. Uh, people don't know what you th- like where they stand. I'm like, okay. He's like, uh, you're unreliable. You drop, you drop balls. Um, uh, you're not paying enough attention to the things that are important. I'm like, okay. And he's like, um, and you suck at planning. Uh, you, people are confused about what to do. And I'm, I'm like, okay. And then he's like, look, okay, you're good with people. So, and you like people to be happy so you avoid conflict you are creative you like new ideas so you don't you don't pay attention to the routine stuff you're comfortable in chaos so you don't plan like these strengths are all like their own weaknesses in disguise like um so and there's no one who's like 10 out of 10 on everything and that's that's why um so you know there's a lot of different philosophies on what do you do with the feedback and you know do you play more to your strengths or do you i think you need at least get your weaknesses to a point where they're not like destroying the company um but generally you want to play to your strengths and that's one of the key effective executive tenets um but other than that uh but then i think just self-warning like uh, trying to understand yourself on all kinds of different dimensions is really valuable and uh, i talked about the enneagram uh in your book, uh, yeah. and, and that's, it's sort of like a, I would call it like a useful Myers-Briggs. Um, so most people are familiar with Myers-Briggs. It's a personality typing, uh, system, but then you read it and it's like reading a personality quiz on the internet. you sort of, you remember you had some letters and there's like some stuff, but you don't actually do anything with it. Uh, I found Enneagram to be similar in terms of it's a, there are a limited number of personality types, but it's much more of a theory about what fundamentally motivates people, what, what demotivates them. Um, and so, uh, I know we don't have a ton of time, so I just say like check it out. Enneagram is very valuable. Like I do it. My t- I was I I was super skeptical. I was like this sounds like a cult, um, <laughs> and it kind of is. But um, it's been very helpful both to do individually and with your team because it just you sort of it, it, you what you learn is like okay here are the here are my blind spots. I was like sorry, I'm an Enneagram seven. These are like totally textbook strengths and weaknesses of a seven that they like they like new things they like. Uh, they're comfortable in chaos, but then they can become distracted and, and, you know, and unreliable, um, conflict avoidant, things like that. So just knowing you always, one way or another, you always want to have an accurate map of like, what do you need to work on? Mm-hmm. Um, how are you, how are you introduced to Enneagram? Well, so it's through my co-founder, uh, but then Arash was introduced to it through a, a guy named Gentry, who, who was the founder of Mailbox, who worked with us for, uh, for a while, so was, you know, call it three, four years ago, and then Ross gotcha. was like, "You're gonna love this. It's great." Da da da, and I'm like, "It sounds super weird," um, but he was right. So it's it's been super helpful. Awesome. Well, I know we we don't have a ton of time left, and maybe sometime we'll do a, a follow up <laughs> with some wine. And I'd love to talk to you more about 
your cadence and so on with an executive coach. Maybe we can get to it another time. But I thought I thought we could wrap up with another thing that you mentioned in uh, the book, you know, Tribe of Mentors, but I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about it, which is the tennis ball circle and the number 30,000. So could you tell us where this comes from and what that means? Sure. So uh, I did the commencement speech for MIT back in 2013. Um, and I was like, the whole premise was, I'm like, all right, what do, God, I'm like, I'm 30. I, I don't really, like, I'm like, can I wait 20 years? I'll say something like way more insightful then. But I'm like, all right, well, I got to, the prompt, the prompt I came up with was like, all right, what, what do I wish I had known? What would I tell my 23 year old self? Um, and if I could sort of send a cheat sheet back in time, what would it have on it? And what I would put on that little cheat sheet is, uh, as you said, a tennis ball, a circle, and the number 30,000. So um, the tennis ball is really about finding that thing you can become obsessed with. And so when I think about like Dropbox or even just other side projects like the PokerBot, like I am both most productive and happiest and most successful. And like, it's like when all those things line up or, or when the thing you're obsessed with overlaps with something the world really needs um, uh, or, or values. So, um, but, but like, don't settle, like find something that, uh, the, the tennis ball is, sorry, the, what is it? Where does the tennis ball come from? I had this like really lazy fat dog growing up, <laughs> um, who would, uh, but when you showed her food or you showed her tennis ball, she would be just, she would just like go nuts. Um, and so you throw a tennis ball for it. So it was like, she was just like this it was like watching like like a ham running on twigs or something like it's like super it was just it was just bizarre it was just funny like and so i was like i'm I'm like what you want is to have like that ridiculous expression on your face and just kind of be so obsessed with something that you just don't care about anything else not overdo it but like but the point is like find something that um not just passionate about but like that just like that 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 you can become obsessed with and, and just really love and something you would do even if you weren't, you know, even if it weren't your job. Um, then the circle concept is really, there's a saying um, uh, by a guy named Jim Rohn that you're, you're an average of the five people you spend the most time with. Um, and I found that to be super true. So, and then, so the, and the upshot is like, choose, choose wisely. So whether that's the literal five people you spend the most time with, or just in the environment you're in. So being um, like going to a, or just find an environment that will pull the best out of you. Um, and so, and I think that's been true for me going to MIT really taught me like what a good engineer looks like. Um, and it's both inspiring in terms of watching all these people who are super like capable, but then also you get jealous and you're like, Oh, I, you know, I, I want to be that good. And so you, you want to harness that kind of negative energy into pushing yourself to work harder. So, and that's what that was true, whether it's school or, um, being in Y Combinator with other founders, like friendly competition there, or with my friends who are starting companies, being in San Francisco, all of those contributed massively to um, t- to us uh, to us making it. Um, and then finally, thirty thousand uh, is 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 really about. Do you, everybody lives on average. Humans live on average for thirty thousand days. I was at first, I was like, okay, yes, this is like a clinical truth, not terribly interesting. Um, cause I think I just moved to San Francisco and I was, and I, and I was just like, I couldn't sleep. So I was just like on the internet reading stuff and I came, came across that and I remember being like, huh, okay. Um, 
and I opened the calculator and I'm like, all right, I'm 24 at the time, 24 times 365. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like already 8,000 days down. Um, so this idea of like life unfolding infinitely in front of you is actually not really true. Um, and so it's really important to not just make every day count, but also understand that, like, think of life more as an adventure or a story more than how you think about life as uh, when you're graduating college, which is like life up until you graduate college is just like a series of checking off boxes and like getting ready for stuff and performing. Um, and all of your worldly achievements can be, are averaged into a GPA. And so every mistake is like, brings that number down and like, it's something you have to like obsess over. And then college graduation is the first day where that's not really true anymore. You don't really have a GPA anymore. You're, you're not an average of all your successes and failures. Like, um, you should change your mindset to life and also just think of it more. So just making a story that's interesting, not just not trying to be perfect. Um, because I think that's a trap that a lot of people fall into. So anyway, those are when I thought about, um, you know, if you were to play everything over again, a hundred times, who knows what would happen. But if I could just hand back a cheat sheet, that's what I would put on it. That's what you'd put on a tennis ball circle and the number 30,000. Well, Drew, I know you have a very, very busy, uh, time ahead of you and I'm sure today is no exception. So I want to let you get back to your day, but do you have any closing comments, asks, uh, suggestions or anything else for people who are listening to this? Any, any kind of parting comments before we wrap up? Uh, let's see. So I, (laughs) um, I think I just don't, don't forget to have, like, don't forget to have fun. And like, and I I think at the, at the end of it, you want to have like, uh, there's an obsession with avoiding failure. And and if you think of it more as the failures aren't really that important, it's more how you respond. And even like what you, what you want to do is write an interesting story, not like a perfect story. Yes. Yes. And I mean, the, the first thing they do with, well, I shouldn't say this so definitively, but it's like a lot of screenwriters who are experienced will, will say you have to create characters, uh, the, the protagonist who on some level the audience really cares about and then torture them. Yeah. <laughs> and then they come out the other side. <laughs> like that is one of the recipes for writing a successful screenplay. And, uh, you know, if you're part of the human condition, it seems like that is going to be a component, uh, one way or the other. Uh, well, Drew, thank you so much uh, for the time. I always enjoy chatting, and hopefully we get to uh, hang again in person sometime soon. But I appreciate you carving out as much time as you did to to share your stories with everybody. For sure. Well, thanks, Tim. It's a lot of fun. And for everybody listening, we will have links to all of the books mentioned, everything else that, uh, that, that Drew may send our way as well in terms of resources, all the things that we discussed, Hacker News, etc., in the show notes, which you can find, as always, at tim.blog forward slash podcast with all the other episodes. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share 
the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by wordpress.com. I love WordPress. I have used it for so many years. It's my go-to platform for blogging and creating websites. I use WordPress.com for everything, every day. My site, Tim.blog, is built on it. The websites for my books, including Tools of Titans, Tribe of Mentors, it's all on WordPress.com. And the founder, Matt Mullenweg, one of my close friends, has appeared on this show many times. Just search Matt Mullenweg Tequila Ferris for quite an exciting time. Whether you're looking to create a personal blog, a business site, or both, you can make a really big impact right out of the box when you build on WordPress.com. And you'll be in good company. It's used by The New Yorker, Jay-Z, Beyonce, 538, TechCrunch, Ted, CNN, and Time, just to name a handful. And one of my friends at Google, she'll remain nameless, has told me that WordPress.com offers the, quote, best out-of-the-box SEO imaginable, end quote. And it's one of the many reasons that nearly 30% of the internet is run on WordPress. You do not need experience or to hire someone. That's perhaps the best part. WordPress.com guides you through the entire experience. They have hundreds of designs and templates that you can use. And it's easy to get started. There's no need to worry about security, upgrades, hosting, any of that. They offer 24-7 support. And they're very, very responsive. If you have questions, they get right back to you. And this allows you to create the highest quality with the least amount of headache and friction. So if you're building a website, period, and my friends come to me and ask what I use, what I recommend they use, the answer is WordPress.com. So check it out. If you want to get started today, learn more with a 15% discount off any new plan. Go to WordPress.com forward slash Tim create your website and find the plan that's right for you. So learn more. Take a look. WordPress.com forward slash Tim for 15% off a brand new website. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by 99designs. Whether you need a logo, custom website, app, book cover, or anything else, 99designs was created to make great design accessible to everyone, that's you, and to make the process as easy as possible. I've used 99designs for years now. I've used them for book covers, some mock-ups for the 4-Hour Body, which went on to become a number one New York Times bestseller, illustrations of all different types for the multi-volume The Tao of Seneca, which you can check out, and other graphic design projects for a long time now. And I've been very impressed by the quality of their designers and illustrators. And you don't have to take my word for it. You should check out some of my projects at 99designs.com forward slash Tim. I really encourage you to take a look because you will be impressed. 99designs.com forward slash Tim. 99designs has freelance experts in more than 90 design categories. And their platform lets you work directly with one designer that you choose if you like their stuff, which is what I did for the Tao of Seneca. Or you can get concepts from multiple designers and then pick your favorite. So whether you're starting a business or just looking for extra design help, resources, etc., 99designs has a solution. Right now, you guys, my listeners, can receive a free $99 upgrade on your first design. 
to check out your first free upgrade, please visit 99designs.com forward slash Tim and click the link on the landing page. You can also find there samples of projects from you guys, listeners, who have used 99designs for logos, apps, even product packaging. So check it out, 99designs.com forward slash Tim.